You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about classic albums and decide if they deserve that distinction. And we also talk about some unsung classics in the hopes of bringing them to a new audience. And at the end of it all, we let you decide if we are right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. to episode 22 of the Unsung Podcast. On last week's episode, we spoke about the Venetian Snares record with the Hungarian title, which I butchered on last week's episode and I'm not really going to do again. Sorry, the public have listened to that episode and they have decided that, yes, indeed, that record will be making it into our discography. So, Venetian Snares, Aaron Funk, we are very happy to have you represented in our discography of All Time Grace. Okay, so before we move on to this week's episode, just a small reminder that in a few weeks' time we will be doing a live grunge mixtape. So get your tickets now. It's in the Flying Duck. It's at 2pm. It's on May the 27th. And it's only two quid to get in, so we think that's a pretty good deal. We'll be talking about all of the good grunge records, probably most, if not all of the bad ones too, and there will be a musical accompaniment, which... Let me tell you, you're just not ready for this. It's going to be fun, it's going to be funny, and it's going to be a great time had by all. That's the plan, anyway. On this week's episode, we are talking about Searching for a Former Clarity by Against Me. Enjoy. Career podcast, that's not the wrong podcast. Plug. Yeah. Hi, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by a grunge fan and his best friend. Oh, <laughs> you just got a promotion, Dave. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I grunge fan. <laughs> uh, to my right is Chad Kroger, the king of grunge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to my left is the Masai Chinned Chode from Creed. What's his name? Scott, Scott Stapp. Stapp. Scott Stapp. Yeah. His name even sounds like a chode. <laughs> I know. Scott Stapp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can tell we're getting psyched about the, the live grunge mixtape that's coming up. So we're going to keep dropping those references as often uh, as You can, can still buy tickets at unsungpod.net. Unsungpod.net. Slash, slash events. 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 So, uh, talking about exciting things. Yes. What record are we doing this week? This week we're doing Searching for a Former Clarity by Against Me, which is... Uh, uh, against Me! Against, against Me! It's got an exclamation on the end. Which we're, is we're being high energy, so 
one of my favourite records. Is it? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know it was that valuable. I hope this doesn't jeopardise our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, could you tell us more about Against Me? Against Me? Yeah. I, I just want to say that I always used to get mixed up between Against Me and Rise Against. Against. Yeah. Because the, they've got the same word. In the the same word in the name. I know. That not really good. same word. You're not really yeah. good at English, are you? <laughs> it's also got a capital A in it as well. Yeah, that's true. So this is Against Me's third record. Uh-huh. The second of Fat Wreck. Was this on Fat Wreck? This was on Fat Wreck, yeah. We're doing, a, we're doing an album on Fat Wreck. <laughs> so this this record and the one beforehand were both on Fat Wreck. Real interest this the record the way this record was made, how this came about was, was really was actually really, really, really interesting. When they released their second album, The Eternal Cowboy, a lot of major labels were sniffing around. So they got offers from Sony and Virgin and Warner and Universal. To nine hundred fifty thousand dollars, they were offered to do that record. And why would you wait for the sake of fifty thousand dollars? Why wouldn't you just go <laughs> to a cool one million? Make it a million. <laughs> well, they, they maybe got, tax reasons. They got up that high, and they basically exploited the guys who the ARs basically taking a piss out of them, and and, and just basically getting them to take them to clubs and get them drunk and just spending all the money. The death grip account, account, yeah. Cool. And then Fat Mike came in and said, "Here's two hundred fifty thousand dollars to stay with Fat Wreck," and they went, "Okay, cool," and he did it. That's not how I heard it, and I'm sure you know better than me. But I heard that, that they were already contractually obliged to release one more record on Fat Wreck and then they bailed the fuck out in Fat Wreck and went to Sire Records, which was a subsidiary of Warner. That is incorrect. <laughs> I'm not surprised that's your reaction. <laughs> but um this is a really, the way this was made was really interesting. So Laura had been for the past few years like dealing quite badly with alcohol and drug dependency issues and she was going through a divorce the tip before this record was written. So at the time, Laura Jane Grace was Thomas James Gabel. Gable. Gable. Yeah, but you don't bring that up. Okay. <laughs> the dead name. No, I, I, yeah. and I absolutely uh, acknowledge that. I'm just, for the purposes of things like sleeve notes and such like. Yeah, all the references online. Isn't it? If you go on Wikipedia, it's all been changed to Laura Jane Grace. Which is, mm-hmm. Anyway, she had a lot of issues. Born, and, by the way, three days after me. Wow. Literally. Yeah. Holy shit. Amazing. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. <laughs> it was a busy week. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, she had a lot of issues, obviously, and she just got divorced, and then they decided that they wanted to make a, a proper record. I, I, reinventing Axe to Rose, their first album, which came out in No Idea Records in 2002, um, that was a whole bunch of, basically like a whole bunch of demos and stuff that had been put together, and they recorded this record over two days, technically three, but two days in 2001, and the next day in 2002, Gold Tone Studios. was very much just in like fucking bash it out they recorded the whole record in one day and then the next day they were like it was too fast and we should probably record it all again so they did it all again the second day <laughs> which is pretty cool they did a whole bunch of touring and then they got a phone call from Fat Mike and he was like eh, I've been listening to you guys and, and I really like your music and he told them exactly how many records they'd sold for that day which they had no idea about and he's like so by my estimation you guys are worth two, you guys are worth $25,000 how about you sign to Fat, Fat Wreck for $25,000 and they were like yeah okay Cool. And he was like, have you got a record ready to go? And they said yes, but they didn't. And then he went away and wrote Eternal Cowboy, which was recorded in Memphis, I believe. Concourse Studios, Concourse Studios, something like that. That was kind of put together in quite a rushed fashion. So when it came into doing this record, 
Laura, Laura decided that she wanted everybody in the band to contribute to the songwriting process, which, which she tried very hard to, to facilitate. And they wanted to spend, they took some time off the road and spent some time to actually write these songs and to actually try and create a, a great record, as it were. They chose to record with Jay Robbins and they wrote the songs and recorded them all within the space of three months, which upon reflection by her admission was probably not enough time to actually do it all. And the whole process around it, if, especially if you read her book, um, All Biography Tranny, it's really interesting because she's so full of like self-doubt like about herself and what her band can achieve, despite the fact they've been courting labor, major label like interest. And they'd spent a lot of time on the Eternal Cowboy Tour when they were doing that and getting interest from major labels, basically um, being really arrogant and dickish because it's like, well, obviously we're hot shit. You know what I mean? People people want us. They, they want a signature. They want us to be signed to like a major label so people keep blowing smoke up our ass and saying we're amazing. But once she put all her addictions to the side, rather, she then decided that she was going to do this record sober, which she did. So some songs on the album we deal with 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 uh, our addiction issues. This kind of that's kind of really reflected in a lot of the writing around that she wrote around the time in her journals and stuff as well. Um, See, um, you're talking about the the kind of period of courting where the the labels were kind of circling and mm. obviously really interested. And after this album, they did leave Fat Wreck and sign to Sire. Yeah, mm. and Sire had like I didn't actually know a lot about Sire until I read about this, but like Sire had like signed Talking Heads, the Undertones, the Ramones. That's why they signed with them. Uh, the, yeah, the label had started mm. in 66, but then in like 78 it had been bought by Warner yeah. and it ended up going on to work with like Madonna, the, and the which is like their biggest act, Pretenders, mm. uh, Depeche Mode, Smiths, Cure, Soft Cell, then Ministry, Ice T, Seal, Underworld, mm. like big, big acts. Yeah. All under the umbrella mm. of Warner distribution, obviously, and, and, and subsidiary status. But I believe there is a DVD we're never going home. Never going home, which was recorded, yeah, during the. Okay, too. Yeah, and so I, I've not seen this, but you you can probably tell us about it. Supposedly, quite a bit of that deals with the major label yep. kind of conflict mm. and feeding frenzy that was happening at yeah, the time. It what does. what mm. does it? What does that DVD reveal of takes the piss out of them of the of the agency and our guys and stuff? Yeah, that's basically what it does the whole time. Um, they do things like put dollar signs in their eyes and kind of make them really make them look really stupid. They play pranks on them all the time and all that, and a lot of the guys stuck in. Uh, pretty much all of them stuck in for, through all the bullshit they were throwing at them and they were just using that as a way to try and drive up the offers and then eventually they didn't take them anyway they went back to Fat Wreck and then they recorded Searching for Former Clarity which is in my opinion their best record and we'll get into that in a bit um, but after they recorded it uh, Fat Mike hated it yeah I was going to say it's kind of it was definitely ironic that he'd fought for mm. this band Yeah, and then they had sort of freedom to work on an indie and then uh, he like hated he hated the production, thought it sounded like shit. Yeah. He didn't like... He didn't, didn't like the that. artwork? Yeah, the artwork, all that kind of stuff. He was just not keen on it at all. And that was a huge that was a huge blow for them. But then on the plus side, it was also really good because they went on tour with Green Day for three months, playing stadiums, opening for them. You know, and they're playing all these huge shows they got in Conan, We Don't Lose Touch. You know, it was like the first the first ever like American late night TV performance. So a lot of big things were happening for them. And then the major labels came back again. They had interest for Universal and, and Sire so, uh, Warner. And they kept they kept going around that circle again. Yeah, so they hit the road really hard. And because she was so because she was sober, she says in, her, in, in the book that she basically spent the entire time, the whole band were like all really in it. And they were just, he, she just spent, which felt like the entire time trying to outrun her dysmorphia. 
when the Conan O'Brien show aired, Don't Lose Touch, which is recorded, that was when like the nine months like sobriety was like broke because they all celebrated and then that was it, went game over for her. Is it true that the album is a concept album? But I couldn't really get to the bottom of what the, the concept of the album was. It's a concept in as much that it's all about like the band's life and the time just beforehand. So a lot of their songs on the record deal specifically with, you know, taking swipes at major labels and, and popular bands and all that. And she was really influenced by The Ugly Organ, by, uh, by I was going to say Converse there, The Ugly Organ by Cursive, which is like, a, I don't know if you've heard it. But Cursive. Yeah, Cursive, yeah, yeah. Which is like a huge kind of critique of art. Mm-hmm. Well, this this kind of does quite a lot of that. But there's also some really, um, really heavy sort of personal songs stuff, which is, I think, quite hard to listen to at times. Nothing but shame and Like I was saying, no, the major label stuck around because there's a lot of great choruses in this record. You know, Don't Lose Touch, it's got a huge chorus and there's a lot, of, a lot of great songs on it, which I think hold up with the best of them. They don't play, like, they don't play any of the songs live anymore. They play Miami. Occasionally they'll play maybe um, From Her Lips. Well, recently, last year, they were playing From Her Lips to God's Ears. Complete, it's one of the singles of yeah, the Complete with Condoleezza, which is like really strange to sing now because, you know, she's she's not involved in government whatsoever. Why then, given the amount of effort and time that went in and the fact that it was so well documented on the DVD in terms of mocking and sort of leading the label, the major labels of Mary Dance, after this album, why did they then sign to a major? Well, see, the thing that, the thing that Laura says, particularly in the book about it, is that she really wanted to be a band and this was the first time Against Me felt like a band because I started off as a solo project and this was the first time that she felt as though they'd actually record, they were actually a band. They were actually spending time being a band, being on the road, touring, writing the record and trying to be a unit and she was really, really happy with that and part of the process of trying to get involved with being an actual band was to get everybody else to contribute but it didn't really pan out the way she wanted to so she then took on the, the role of being like the leader almost as being like the primary songwriter of the record, of, of all the records and after the whole Fat Mike thing, which was kind of, I mean... You mean his disappointment with... His disappointment the, with that, and the fact that they were on the road for so long, and they were, one of the first punk shows she'd ever been to was Green Day, so she got to play with them, like, for three months, playing stadiums, which they knew they'd never, they'd never play themselves. When they, you know, after their record label started sniffing around again, she was like, well, fuck it, like, I really owe it to myself to do this. Like, I really want to be a great band, and I want to do that. So it was like this, despite the fact she's a, a punk and an anarchist, there was also that huge side of her, which is really into stuff like the replacements and really huge Madonna fan and really into like really popular music and I, I find it like I, well, the change. I, I find it really difficult to get my head around though how somebody can be uh like profess such a love of crass or especially describe themselves as an anarchist and then sign a major label in any in any fashion. I mean, I find it uh, e- even without signing a major label to take part in. I mean. Almost any of these systems is like so. Uh, it conflicts so much. I know, but you can appreciate Crass and be a fan of them and take elements of. But their... they self-identify as an anarchist. Well, here's one thing which 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 should be cleared up right now is when they left No Idea Records and they signed to Fat Rick, they were branded as being sellouts by a lot of their fans and a lot of anar- and a lot of anarchists like in the scene generally. Do you think they had a point? 
Well, no, because fat rec isn't a major label. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that to be, like, wide. I'm, I'm asking, do you think they had a point? I mean, if you're an anarchist and a fellow anarchist signs with fat rec records and goes in tour with Green Day, do you not think they have a point? That, that well, is... This, this is before this record, so this is when they, they did the Eternal Cowboy. So it was right before, right after that. And a lot of the, a lot of the institutions that, she, that she'd really loved and she'd grown to kind of see being, like, a fundamental part of her identity then started to turn off for, doing, for making that jump. There was no, like, basically, the, one of the biggest reasons they went to Fat Rec is because Fat Rec approached them and they, they went back to No Idea Records and No Idea, and they asked No Idea, well, can you at least get some money for a van? Because we need to actually do more touring. And No Idea were like, well, no, we can't give you any money for anything. And they were like, well, in order for us to actually be a band and do stuff, we kind of need to make this jump. When but in make, order to be an anarchist, you kind of also need I'm to sacrifice that. But you need to sacrifice other things, and, and one of those things would yeah. be those... Ego. <laughs> well, ego, but um, also... The machinations of whether it's major or not, Fat Rec's pretty fucking big deal. And if you want to honour anarchy and the principles it stands for and fucking Murray Bookchin and all these fucking ideas that lie behind it, there are sacrifices you have to make. I mean, Crass were a very, very ideologically driven band and a band that meant a lot to people. And it's one thing to admire that, but it's a bit like, it strikes me a bit like Green Day calling themselves punk in their current state. It's like, well, you're so far from that. Why not just abandon that label? I'm not diminishing them as a person or as an artist. I still, I still think like Laura Jean Grace is a very accomplished artist. Absolutely. I'm just saying, why try and marry two concepts that are so apparently incompatible rather than just... I'm trying to get to that. <laughs> I have a point. <laughs> so <laughs> after they signed to Fat Rec, there was an editorial and which they were, they were obviously like very kind of had a lot of issues we wanted to do anyway, you know, from a fundamental point of view. There was an editorial written in Maximum Rock and Roll, which is a huge magazine, you know, for her, and basically saying that against me are now complete sellouts and you should do anything you can to sabotage any of their shows. And fans started doing that. So, like, they kick a shit out of their van, they'd ruin their merch, pour bleach over it, do you know what I mean? They would, like, literally rip their guitar, guitars and instruments off stage when they're playing them and stuff like that. So that led to a disillusionment of, of that scene because then she started to realise, well, these people... Are unwilling to are come, unwilling to come with, uh, yeah, totally. And she was like, "Well, these people, these are people I identify with, but I'm now seeing a nasty side to them, which means that are they just as full of shit as like think that I am? You know, just because they don't they don't identify with the same ideals. I mean, without trying Conversely, to, though, right when she, when they started touring Europe and they were playing all the anarchist swats around Europe as as punk bands do, she was like, the anarchist vibe was completely different. They were really accepting of us. They were really accepting of our ideals, and that was much more my speed, much more the way it was. But it just seemed to be. There's a really insular element to the punk scene in Gainesville and the stuff that they were dealing with and the politics of it that she just kind of grew very disillusioned. So she kind of pushed herself, moved herself away from that whole thing, you know. Yeah, maybe one beget the other, of course, but ultimately... The, there were personal reasons behind her disillusionment with yeah. that scene. I think the, the, what that that is kind of one of the hallmarks of left-wing politics anyway, though, and I say that as somebody who, who holds left-wing political beliefs, that so many of the movements that we court and so many of the ideologies that we admire often turn on us, mm -hmm. you know, and often as life necessitates compromise, so many of those ideologies are so inherently inflexible, at least in certain areas of the communities, you know, and anarchism is one, you know, it's totally. like whether you like it or not, if you identify as an anarchist, which is a very, for want of a better word, radical, at least in terms of the structure and the, 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 the concepts, if you identify as that, to some extent you're making a rod for your own back because 
you are only going to piss off other anarchists who then resent you watering down their term because they're maybe sacrificing a lot to be what they consider anarchists and someone else who is touring on such and such a budget to selling so many thousand records is told you're worth £25,000 or £250,000 whatever it is they're like that's not anarchism anarchism is repossessing an abandoned building and you know fucking growing your own food and standing against political systems that uh, don't represent people and I think like that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm I'm not saying I'm not taking a side. I'm trying to be devil's advocate here. I'm just saying that when that is your the flag you're waving, there are certain consequences that. that yeah, but I think she stopped waving that flag because she saw the inherent inflexibility of it. But did she stop waving that flag because that bit her on the ass, or did she? Well, no. I think it is not. I think there's surely some sort of like personal compromise of seeing how it actually affects you personally and with your very natural ambitions you know as a person and if you you just don't feel that you can commit to that lifestyle then you're like okay well i need to do what i feel comfortable with and then if that doesn't tie up then but th- i mean i think this is an interesting case study or microcosm of the wider issues that face punk bands that become successful anyway because punk fundamentally or punk whatever people would try and agree on a vague definition of it is about rebelling against these bigger systems and against like big corporate interests and stuff and so it's really fascinating to see it when it's played out like this i like i am not being critical of them on a pragmatic basis i totally get what what she decided to do i I totally get that i just think it's a really interesting discussion and i can see the point of view of the people that were pissed off about it i'm not saying i agree with them but you can see where their thinking was coming from and you mm. have to kind of be compassionate in that sense and be like, well, they're giving up a lot to live that. It's just, it's just an interesting argument when punk goes mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they went mainstream, they didn't go totally mainstream, but you sign to something as big as Warner or a Warner subsidiary, you are effectively going mainstream. If you're on the Conan show or whatever, that's effectively mainstream. Oh yeah, I mean, that was, when they did, when they did sign to a major label and they did do New Wave, that was very much part of the goal. When you realise you're really good at something, mm-hmm. the temptation is, and these guys are really good at something, mm-hmm. it's when you realise that suddenly you're presented with a temptation that you never really thought you maybe would have when you defined yourself as an anarchist. You're like, I'm never going to get that opportunity, so really calling myself this isn't a big sacrifice. And then suddenly you're like, oh shit, I could be quite well off or quite well recognised within this field. Do I still want to sacrifice that? And that's a big challenge. It's it's just interesting. That's yeah. all I'm saying. And it, it's the, the inherent challenge of successful well-made punk music is that it gets co-opted and it's interesting to see how different people deal with it i think i'm not making a value judgment on that i just think it's a it's an interesting i just think like the whole the whole narrative of the band like entirely has has been super interesting not least because of the stuff they've i guess there's a reason why the book is called tranny the world's the world's most infamous like anarchist sellout you know i think she's completely aware of the fact of all the stuff that's, that's happened in that regard and there's a song on White and White Crosses called I Was a Teenage Anarchist. And it talks explicitly about how none of it was ever good enough. be the most ardent anarchist but it still was never enough for some people that's, that's absolutely it's the same as straight you know? edge it's, yeah. the, it's the reason that Ian McKay had hot coffee thrown in him and it's the reason that uh, Ray Capo had wine thrown over him while he was on a, a tour of Italy you know it's, it's when you align oh, well, in fact Ian McKay didn't even align with straight edge but there is always somebody that has a hardier definition of it and there's always yeah. someone ready mm-hmm. to judge 
But there is, when you endorse those systems, you are in some way laying the groundwork for that. And that's partly why sometimes it can be so fraught with problems from the start. Mm-hmm. There's no doubting how talented she was, is, and there's no doubting that they were going to get opportunities given their knack for this kind of music. Yeah, it was, it was, there was almost inevitable that they were going to encounter these problems at some point. And certainly making the decision to sign at Warner is only going to exacerbate them. Mm-hmm. I feel as though I'm unfairly maligned in these past few weeks. On the cash calls? Yeah. But the fact is, when we started doing this podcast, we had some really good gear on loan and we no longer have good gear on loan, so we're just cobbling shit together. I mean... Because we burned our bridges pretty yeah. pretty quickly into the, the run of shows. Yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, there's an wild one, which just didn't, didn't pan out for anybody, really. So, yeah. Glasgow's a small city and the word got out that we'd... Uh, talk down. Talk down our, our, our fabulous chucked up boys. Yeah, so Chris MacGyvered a headphone amp by taping it to a sofa. So I think <laughs> Flem, sellotape, some straw and some elbow grease. I think that tells you everything you need to know about why you should give us some money <laughs> because we really need to buy some stuff. So please do that. You can go to www.unsungpod.net forward slash donate and just donate generously. Imagine if you were like Comic Relief but we weren't kids. We should probably point out that if you donate, it's not just a one-way street. You will get extra material that only very special people get. I feel as though that's something we should have pointed out in every other one of these we've done, but we've not. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I think we've missed the point here. <laughs> this may be consistent with our failure at marketing generally. Yeah, so donate so we can get good gear and you can get cool stuff. Like you might have seen a wee while ago, we did a new metal mixtape. We're going to do more of that kind of thing in future as well as interviews and stuff. Some of them will be serious and journalistic. Some of them, Some mm-hmm. of them will just be hilarious. Exactly. But that's cool stuff that you get for free if you give us some money. So please do that. Thank you. It's cool stuff that you get for free if you give us some money. <laughs> <laughs> you do? You get for free if you give us some money. <laughs> Before they sent Isaiah, they actually took on uh, a Tigris manager and then he was kind of responsible for helping get th- getting through that process of signing Isaiah uh, and they offered them, I think, $1.5 million to sign and then she went away and she wrote the record herself. Well, she was on tour with Alkaline Fuel mostly, which was a whole disastrous thing, which is really interesting to read about, but I won't go into it. It's really, a really interesting point was made, actually. Like One of her friends says to her, Major labels are only looking for bands that can sell that, that first 100,000 records because they, then they know that they can make you sell 250,000, which turned out to not be the case. <laughs> was um, was New Wave the album that came out yeah. on Sire? Which is a great record and it's got probably one of the most important songs in the Against Me canon as well, in it, the, uh, the Ocean. the line in it you know if I was a, if I was born a woman I'm all about to call me Laura the, um, produced by Butch Vig that album as well eh? yeah both, both of the major label albums were but the second one after that they did White Crosses and that was a, that was a concerted attempt to actually become that big rock band and Butch, Butch Vig kind of actively pushed him to do that because that's what Laura wanted to do and the singles on that are f- well most of the songs aren't really good but the singles on it are fucking amazing like they're proper big like punk like rock, hard rock songs you know and they still stand up really well today Church. 
No, it's the it was it two thousand and nine Warren Oaks quit to run a Mexican restaurant. Yeah, uh huh. I mean, I have time for that. <laughs> I, 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 that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I love a burrito. Fucking, we'd love to run a Mexican restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So, in terms of this record <clears throat> musically, <clears throat> why do you think it stands out? It feels the most cohesive they've done probably since, but the second most cohesive now. But. If you look at their early records up until Transgender Dysphoria Blues, for me, it's the most cohesive record. It sounds like a band trying to be a band. Now, you could argue that there are probably songs on it that could come off it, you know? Mm. Even at our best, we're still better than most, which is all right. Not re- doesn't even feel like a fully realised idea for a song it's but 40, I, I like it it's 14 tracks and 47 minutes yeah it's so the longest it record by, yeah, it's, by a long way it's long you know? for a mm-hmm. punk record yeah it's, even by Road Mission she says there's probably a lot of fat in that it could have been trimmed but again it comes back to that time thing three months to write a record and then record a record and uh, in a studio is not a long time three months yeah well, if you've just well, come off the road then you've three got, months is the the period that Kevin had to record Antenna and they felt it was too much well, we write it and record it, so write it, demo it, then record it. They, they did Jupiter in four days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did a lot of records. Like, they did, they did Eternal Cowboy in like a week, you know? Um, do you, I mean, kind of so. so... But fundamentally, though, this is an underrated record in that sense, in the sense, especially in the opinion of Fat Mike. Mm. But, um, or based on the opinion of Fat Mike. But I noticed that New Wave was like Spin's album of the year. Yeah. You know, which is like no small feat when you mm-hmm. consider that Spin's a pretty broad net, yep. you know, that's that's cast there. And it's like, so, I mean, they're a band that's received praise in a lot of circles. Um, so you feel that this album, though, more than any others merits that extra bit of investment. See, I don't know if I would say more than any others because Transgender's Four Blues is probably their best album. It's the most concise. It's, it's the most vibrant. It's got probably the best songs on it, but we're looking at unsung, and for me, this is my favourite because it has a lot of swipes at the music industry, which I find really fascinating given the position they were in. You know, given and, that and they then pres- later yeah, joined it. Exactly. So even in hindsight, it's good. It's also got the song Searching for Former Clarity, which has, you know, another important line and another important sort of song in the Against Me or sort of Laura Jane Grey sort of gender dysphoria journey that she's been on for her entire life. She'd been dressing up women's clothing and all that and, and wearing wigs and going on what she called gender benders like for years and years and years and years and she wrote about in her journals, you know what I mean? And and it was a, a part that she always kept hidden but she'd always, she occasionally would drop hints of it in songs so there's a, co- a song called The Disco Before The Beat Down. Is like the first the first proper band EP should before uh, Invent Naxo Rose which has got a reference on it a couple of references to you know Gender Dysphoria on it and then searching for former clarity of the song itself Confessing Childhood Secrets addressing up women's clothes Confessing Childhood Secrets of dressing up in women's clothes Compulsions you never knew 
she said that it was really interesting when they finished the record and they played in the studio because it was like it ends that's the last song of the record and it's a really slow kind of quite a heavy lyrically song and she was like nobody like it even nobody in the band had even said anything about it or even looked at her or anything like that she said she found that was a bit weird mm-hmm. that whole period is really interesting as well because our bass player um, was Warren Andrew Seward like he's a pure manly manly man and they go to the gym together and all that and he felt as though she was just performing Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's another reason why the whole sire thing was really really difficult because then she was in such public spotlight, you know, and she felt as though she was actually performing. Having well, to be another a, band that took the Foo Fighters, you know, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Foo Fighters are on every episode of this damn podcast, yeah. anyway, but like they're another band that toured with Foo Fighters. Yeah, yeah. they are the glue. <laughs> it seems to be like a really stinky glue. Yeah. But I mean, um, it was a whole that, that the whole new wave thing, and like apparently the recording process was great, but the actual touring was horrible because she felt like she had to perform a gender which she wasn't. To be fair, they've had some pretty bad touring experiences in the past. Some very bad they're, touring experiences. They're a band that are yeah. prone to the odd traffic accident. Yeah. Like two thousand and one, man, they, their entire van was written off and all their gear. Mm-hmm. And again in two thousand and eight, so two thousand and nine. Yeah, broke into and stuff like that as well over the course of the and stuff, you know, so it's been really yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's some pretty hairy mm. touring experiences right enough. I suppose you spend that many hours on the road, that yeah. happens. I mean, obviously it's a band that's inescapable that Laura Jean Grace forms a big part of the the conversation around the band mm-hmm. and it's so much of it is about her. It started as mm-hmm. a solo project. It's imbued with so many aspects of her struggles mm-hmm. uh, with her identity and with her reflections on on that and I'd imagine with her reactions and the reactions of the world to her since 2012. Mm-hmm. It's, just really it's fascinating in that yeah. sense. It's mm. fascinating as well that she has a daughter. Yeah, and, and married twice. Yeah, and there's mm. there's there's so many interesting insights to, to glean from that. So it's it's not easy. Sorry, it's not hard to understand why people would find the material so rich mm-hmm. in that I, sense. I think it's like another reason why I like this record so much is because that drive that she had to actually try and write it as a collaborative thing is something that she hadn't really done afterwards until the last record, Shapeshift With Me, which was definitely designed to be much more collaborative and it is, I think, all of them. I think they all play guitar at some point in that record, all four of them. And for what it's worth, the version of Against Just Me... Just a wall of guitars. There's four <laughs> people playing harmonised guitars at one time. But Iron yeah. Maiden. <laughs> That's why, great. Why not? <laughs> the pantomime band. And for what it's worth, I would say that the version of Against Me that exists just now is the best version of the band musically that has, that has ever been the best incarnation. It's getting from um, a National Noise Conspiracy and Bass. Refused. And, and, and Atom Willard, mm. Willard from Atom Willard. Inge Johansson. Yeah. And... He's actually got a really good backing vocal on one of the songs on Future for me. It's really, really quite funny. But yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. But nice to see you so enthused. <laughs> it really is. You're positively glowing. I love this record, man. I can tell. Miami is a. This great is literally more words than you've spoken in the entire ever, history yeah, of the podcast ever, put together. Ever. <laughs> um, Miami is a good opener. The only song to still play live. Also, the song they spent the most most work on apparently in the studio. Got that weird brass bit towards the end as well, which I think is pretty cool. Mediocre to get your pairs, I really love that too. Given that Justin had a nice sort of change of pace, yeah. and I'm sex energy to partners it. is phenomenal, I think. Which is all about quoting major labels, so it's kind of. I thought, like, as punk goes. I'm not hugely into that vocal take on it, but, you know, horses for courses. 
her voice was fucked on this record. She went to record and it was just really, really difficult to do it. And J. Robbins actually told her, like, you've got to go to the right, fucking like doctor. Social like, distortion, kind of. Yeah. Like, oh, like, you've got to go to see a doctor because there's definitely <coughs> some issues with your voice here. J. Robbins, she, though, she eh? as well, yeah. That's a good producer, like, yeah. yeah. Love J. Robbins. I think I think this, I think this record sounds really good. I like yeah. the sound of this record. Everything J. Robbins does yeah. sounds really good. It's really raw and it's not compressed like we spoke about on previous episodes. It's not super compressed. Yeah, it's... It breathes quite It's a got lot. a nice energy to it. Mm-hmm. Fuck's Fat Mike's problem. I don't know. <laughs> Apart for the fact that I, people call him Fat Mike, I know. that would really eventually start. Like, I just, I have, I've, I went into this record thinking I probably wasn't going to like it because they're a band that have been around me. Uh, not against me. Not against <laughs> me. But I've been around, you know, I've had pals that have been really into them and normally I'd sort of absorb that somehow and I'd never have. So I was like, right, I'm actually going to properly listen to this and understand why and yeah, I just think it made me just think more that maybe I just don't get punk overall. <laughs> you know, maybe I've been, you know, this alternative into heavy music all my life. So I think I should like punk. But maybe I actually don't like punk. So I just don't get it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because against me, I kind of on the crossover between punk and folk and country. They always kind of have. Yeah. Been, and you know. to me, those three genres definitely have good bits. I do like some punk. And I do like some interesting folk and I do like some like really nice uh, country music as well. Mm. But I think maybe the worst three parts <laughs> have been taken here. Just or no, not the worst three, just the parts that I don't get. Like I don't I just don't get folk punk at all. And this was way more sort of rockabilly than I thought it would be. It was way more like I had like bits of dropkick Murphys in it and stuff like that. <laughs> And that to me, I don't know. I just don't. I don't understand it. There's something about punk and maybe this record that they they choose easy chords. Yeah, uh, I mean, and like there's like maybe maybe I'm just maybe I just only like miserable music or something like that. But it's, and it's, when they do, you know, major chords, I just don't get it. It's a genre that loves convention, I and mean, we've spoken about that before. And yeah. it is a genre that adores right to a formula well. It's like like cooking a simple dish well. It's like this is what I want. I want it done well, and I think these these records, uh, like a number of the records, are punk done really well. I'm kind of with you in the sense that I don't personally get a lot out of listening to them because of their take on it. But at the same time, kind of putting my objective hat on, I'm like, but it is done really well. Yeah, it is. Um, I can totally tell. Yeah, and the, they've got a really interesting energy. They're obviously, you know, a talented band. It's just like for me, I was listening to it and I was like, it sounds like just in terms of like the actual audio of it sounds like Fugazi but with all the interesting bits taken out <laughs> and I was like oh oh no yeah no it's doing exactly what I think it's going to do rather than something that I'm not expecting which is kind of I don't know well I enjoy oh. simplicity simple stuff done well and this yeah. is, they do it very well and I think she's got a really interesting way lyrics and melody the lyrics are interesting and I like I do think the melodies are interesting but there's just something about it that's not for me I don't know why just didn't click at all. I think if 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 you wanted to give something else another go, I'd probably give Transgender Dysphoria Blues a go because mm-hmm. it is probably their mo- it is probably some of their best, uh, definitely some of their best songs actually. Like most of the songs on it are amazing. It's only twenty minutes long as well. It's like way shorter than this. Only ten songs on it, and it's just banger after banger for me anyway. I think the fans would probably say that Reinventing Axl Rose is probably the one that would go in mm-hmm. or should be up for discussion. But for me, that record never really clicked. Never really clicked properly with me. I think there's too much on it, which is just kind of mm. 
Seems yeah. like there's a chance that this might not get in based on the fact that people will disagree too much with the choice of the record as opposed to the record itself not being of a high standard. I think so. So you've taken that gamble, you realise? No, I knew it, I knew it when, I, when I went for it because not many people are going to go with the, the major label records despite the fact that some of the best songs she's ever written is on are on New Wave and certainly all the singles and White Crosses I think are amongst the best songs, best punk songs I've heard in I think my whole life. Well, folk are going to have to no. go over that when I pick Stranger Than Fiction yeah. by Badrology. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, which is an interesting record. Yeah, I mean... I, we'll I, get I, to that, but... Yeah. I, let, 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 it'll be really... This will be one that I'm interested to see how people react to it with more uh, awareness of the band themselves. Like, I, I think it's a, a well-done record that leaves me a little cold based on taste, but I'm more curious to see how people feel it sits amidst their canon based you know because mark you're saying yourself you're taking a gamble on this one thinking it could be a controversial choice that'll be interesting i like the sort of underdog vibe that you've given it i think you've <laughs> sold it well on that very punk case I, I genuinely think it's the best record because it's most consistent record apart from fancy and Euphoria blues but i'd also seen him this fucking pumped about a record makes <laughs> hey, me like, pumped i'm like but nervous yeah because i think he's going to take this one <laughs> no, I, I, like if, it, if it doesn't go in, that's, I'm totally cool with it because there are any of the records can go in, really, in my opinion, including White Crosses, which I like just not as much as the others. And Shapeshift for me, the latest record, Shapeshift with me, the latest record, is perhaps it sounds like a band are going a different direction. There's a lot of really weird things going on in it, kind of messing about the, the punk conventions they've kind of leaned on for a long time. There's some surfy things on it, there's some kind of proper rockabilly things on it, there's loads of different interesting production textures and vibes on it. Is maybe their best produced record actually aside from this. So let's throw it to the mob and see what the mob makes of it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what people say. That's yeah. the, the whole point. Because there's good songs throughout their entire catalogue, and you could pick any record. I think based on that alone. But for me, this is just this feels like a band. The first two records don't really they feel they don't really feel this, that cohesive in the same way. Yeah, there's a lot of effort in this. Yeah, there's some songs which could probably get cut out. Uh, the, even those have got a bit of charm. Even though the songs which could get trimmed feel a bit unrealised. I like that about it. I think it's pretty punk, you know. You've just you've put all your you've put all your money in black. And you've went to see what happens, you know. And I know that I know that Laura doesn't like this record. She said to herself, "Jesus, nobody likes this record." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's the thing. Like she doesn't like it. Fat Mike doesn't like it. The fans aren't sure about. I know it. a lot. I know Dave a lot. Isn't sure about it. I know a lot of on the fence. I know a lot of against me fans that love this record, right? Um, so I'm hopefully they will vote with me. But you're gonna have to phone them. Yeah, I'm gonna have to <laughs> fucking get on. Them. Yeah, get on the phone, man. <laughs> send them a fucking carrier pigeon or something. Get Venetian snares to send them a carrier pigeon. Um, like stick it in the ballot and let's just fucking plug the grunge thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I have enjoyed your um, rooting for it. If people don't so, vote for I've it, I've just enjoyed the sound of his voice. <laughs> it's been lovely. It's been. If people don't vote for it, that's cool. I totally get it. But I no, think you don't. You I, don't mean that. I think you're overlooking it if you're not, because I think this is. A, you get deep into it. I think this is the most. Spirited, even though it's really depressing and quite like low key in a lot of places, I think this is the most spirited record they've done. And I know that Laura Jean Grey says it as well, and that's no reason not to like it. I don't know, I just dig it, man. I really dig it. I'm going with the underdog here. I think you should vote for it. So I'll put it out to you guys. Let us know what you think. I know that Chris and Dave are on the fence. That's fine. Nice diplomatic answer there, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Great. Where, do, where do people go to vote, Mark? You just go to our Facebook page and vote. You can do it there. What um, else do they do in there, Mark? You can also drop us a rating and review. Where else can they do that, Mark? On iTunes, which is great. What else can they do in iTunes? Listen. 
God damn it, just listen to the podcast. <laughs> Tell your Tell friends. Tell your friends about it, yeah. Um, we have an exciting opportunity for those who like the podcast coming up very, very soon. Yeah, just uh, following on from our incredibly exciting announcement two weeks ago, uh, can we just reiterate that on the 27th of May in Glasgow at the Flying Dock at 2pm, it's a Sunday, you'll have time to go to church or whatever you do, throw exit church. Um, Not a hangover. <laughs> we will be uh, appearing in the flesh to uh, execute the unsung podcast Live grunge mixtape. David, can you name some grunge bands that will appear in that? A theory of a dead man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> a like where you're mm. Bush, Bush made it on up. And live. Wow. And live? Everclear. Skimming right off the top oh, here. <laughs> <laughs> and a Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> some folk would take issue that you put them with the other ones. Uh, no, I'm just literally naming all Riffin. the yeah. all the grunge bands that you know. Yeah, Mark, exactly. do you know any grunge bands? Like literally, Mark, do you know any grunge? Bands? I, I do. I know some grunge bands. My Tony will probably turn up. The only guy sitting here in a check shirt is the guy that definitely knows the least grunge bands. Yeah, I know Nirvana in Soundgarden. Who? And Alice in Chains. No. Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam. Not ringing a bell. Nah, totally. I did listen to Houdini by Melvis recently and it's fucking tremendous. It's a really good album. Fantastic. Will that pay Very off? good. Very good. <laughs> it sounds mental. My grunge missives of... Well, that's a bit of record which I'm going to pick, so... Great. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, well we're going to we'll do see that. Then. There's going to be a little live musical interlude and everything will be very fun and chaotic because it's live and there'll be seats. And, and maybe some pictures, a, maybe some images. Maybe some images. Yep, yeah, we might do something like that. There's a bar. If you really need that to get through it. <laughs> you uh, might need it. <laughs> yeah, it's £2 a ticket. If you go on our website, uh, there is a page set up, unsungpod.net forward slash events. Uh, and that will walk you through the process of how you buy a ticket and then go to a show. So guys, what is our album next week? On the next episode, we are talking about Never Better by POS. Great. Homework. <laughs> Going to be good fun. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much. You're welcome. Let this be the last song. Let this be the end. Let all be forgiven.